morning, let's get started. This is the fifth of my lectures this term, so well done for making it. Um, I'm going to take up one of last week's playwrights. Last week I was talking about collaborative play, which of Edmonton. Um, and I'm going to pick up one of its authors, John Ford. We think that Ford wrote eight, eight extant solo plays. And I guess this one, the one I'm talking about today, Tis Pity She's a Whore, is probably the most famous, the one that's found a place, uh, a lasting place in the repertoire, and that's something I'm going to talk about as we go on. Uh, the themes I want to try and pick up in relation to Tis Pity are questions of intertextuality, how this play connects to other plays, uh, the kind of contextual issue of anatomy, and something about modern performance. Let's start though with a kind of a plot summary. So Ford's play, Tis Pretty She's a Whore, is the story of a young couple's illicit love, which is kept secret from their family. Their only confidence are for the young man, a friar, for the young woman, her nurse. Another suitor for the woman is presented by the family, who don't know of the first relationship. She is forced to marry him. As the truth emerges, it is fatal for the couple, leaving the family bewildered by what has happened. Now, if that play seems familiar, yes, you have seen it before. Ford's play is clearly built on the scaffolding of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I talked in a lecture earlier in this series about the distorting effect of comparing all early modern drama to Shakespeare and then finding it inadequate in some way or other by comparison. But Ford here, and in his other plays too, is clearly explicitly borrowing from Shakespeare, and he's turning that borrowing to his own dramatic use. In particular, of course, he changes one really <coughs> crucial factor. The dramatic problem in Romeo and Juliet, that the Montagues and the Capulets are feuding and are therefore too far apart to countenance their children marrying, that's slyly collapsed by Ford here. The young lovers in Tis Pity She's a Whore, Giovanni and Annabella, are brother and sister. The forbidden quality of their love is not that their families are too separate, but that they are one and the same. To use the language of prescribed affiliations that comes from studies of incest and kinship and taboos, what in Romeo and Juliet is too radically exogamous, so exogamy is the social practice of marrying outside the social group, so Romeo and Juliet is too radically exogamous, becomes for Ford too radically endogamous. Endogamous is the practice of marrying within a social or kinship group. So there are lots of important differences between Romeo and Juliet and Tis Pity, not least a turn to sensational, what's sometimes called decadent violence. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the kind of critical idea of decadence and what that might imply. And certainly the numinous romantic quality of the earlier play is turned into a more explicitly erotic and voyeuristic drama here. The decorous suicides in the Capulet tomb are transformed into a terrible, spectacular bloodlust. Nevertheless, let's notice first what Ford clearly wants, wants us to notice, his debt to Romeo and Juliet. Let's think about how this intertextual reference might do work for Ford and his audiences. So both Romeo and Juliet and Tis Pity are stories turning on lovers who defy parental expectations and give their own desires precedence over social norms. Both plays... The lovers in both plays use morally compromised confidants as go-betweens to further their relationships. Both pairs of lovers ultimately pay the price for their fatal loves. But each play also suggests that the lovers deserve at least some of our sympathy. We tend to see the play's actions from the lover's point of view rather than from the point of view of the social norms represented by the family. Indeed, in both plays, the social norms are often revealed to be coercive or deeply undesirable. 
Let's take one example from Ford's play. Ford's character, Saranzo, for instance, Saranzo, who is the preferred suitor for Annabella, who she ends up marrying to conceal her relationship with Giovanni and to conform to her father's expectations. Saranzo is uh, not really quite like Paris, who plays the same role in Romeo and Juliet. Here, Ford Saranzo is revealed to have already had an adulterous affair with Hippolyta and to have sent her husband off on a dangerous sea voyage in order to get him out of the way in a strange kind of um, sort of uh, uh, unnecessary bit of the plot. Uh, the husband of uh, Hippolyta Riccadetto is not dead and uh, actually comes back in disguise. But Saranzo, that's to say, is not presented as an automatically morally preferable alternative to Giovanni. Uh, we might expect that he would be, that a, that a suitor who is outside the family might automatically look like someone a better bet than your own brother. But that's not the case. <coughs> and there are ways in which the Romeo and Juliet echoes in Tis Pity may also hint that, just as the feud between the Veronese families in the earlier play is left unexplained by the plot, it's presented as a matter of custom rather than of rational uh, explanation. Nobody tells us why the families are feuding in Romeo and Juliet. And that echo in Tis Pity may also suggest that the prohibition on incest is a matter of social taboo rather than of rational uh, social organisation. The question of the ethics of incest is one with which Tispitish's Hall begins. Giovanni and the friar are in a kind of logical, scholastic or casuitical debate about it. It takes on uh, the forms of scholarly argument um, uh, that would have been uh, recognisable to Ford's audience. And that question of the ethics of incest is the one around which the play continues to circle. The play's first lines try to put a stop to the debate. It's interesting the play starts by saying, let's not discuss this anymore, and then goes on uh, to do that both verbally and in, in, in its dramaturgy for the next uh, five acts. Dispute no more in this, says the friar. Dispute no more in this for no young man. These are no school points. Nice philosophy may tolerate unlikely arguments, but heaven admits no jest. Wits that presumed on wit too much by striving how to prove there was no God, with foolish grounds of art discovered first the nearest way to hell. The friar says, you may be able to argue this, sort of hypothetically, um, but stop. These, these are no school points. This is not the classroom. This is not... Uh, an exercise in which you argue the most extreme point of view and try to uh, make it seem rhetorically compelling. Uh, and also, he says, the stakes are very high. Um, it's not just about who you have sex with. It's the way to hell, the nearest way to hell, and proving that there is no God. Atheism, uh, damnation, and incest are collapsed together here in this opening speech. Giovanni's impassioned must I not do what all men else may love? Must I not do what all men else may love? Becomes a question of the most cosmic theological kind. The stakes, the play suggests, are not simply those of private transgression. So as we've begun to see, and we'll go on to explore further, Ford is a playwright much influenced by Shakespeare. There are echoes in all his plays of Shakespeare's tragedies, particularly Othello. But more broadly, he's also deeply engaged with the theatre of a previous age, with the 1590s. We don't know the exact date of Tis Pity, but it's generally set somewhere between about 1629 and the date when it's first published in Quarto, 1633. So if we put it at the, end, at the beginning of the 1630s, Romeo and Juliet from around 1594 to 5, is already more than 30 years old by this point. And so too are some other plays which help shape this one, some of which we've already discussed this term. Giovanni's intellectual restlessness in the play's opening scene, he's just returned from university. He's full of argumentative fight against conformity. That recalls, I think, Dr. Faustus, which also begins with somebody, a university man, who has run through uh, all his books 
and has big questions about the world. When he opens the play in conversation with Friar Bonaventura, he may recall the image of Mephistopheles, who first appears to Faustus as a Franciscan friar. When Giovanni boasts towards the end of the play that he could hold fate clasped in my fist and could command the course of time's eternal motion, he's turned from Faustus into Tamburlaine, Marlowe's martial hero famously persuaded Xenocrate to marry him. Forsake thy king and do but join with me and we will triumph over all the world. I hold the fates bound fast in iron chains and with my hand turn fortune's wheel about. It's interesting to think whether the quotation is by Ford or by Giovanni here. The play's revenge plot, Tis Pity's revenge plot, especially including the phrase, now brave revenge is mine, now brave revenge is mine, recalls Kids, the Spanish tragedy. There's a lecture on that play on iTunes. And there are pieces of stage business such as The Man uh, Running Mad, the writing of a letter in blood, which also seem to come from the story of Hieronymo's struggle with courtly indifference over the death of his son, Horatio. We might also see in the Spanish tragedy the seeds of sibling incest. <coughs> Bel Imperia's creepily controlling brother Lorenzo expresses a kind of displaced incestuous desire for her by managing her managing her marriage choices with particular vehemence, and also by spying on her tryst with her lover. A suggestion of um, sibling relationships, which I think is amplified by Webster in The White Devil and The Duchess of Malfi, which we might see as one step uh, in the chronological link to Ford. <coughs> now, all of these allusions to Romeo and Juliet, to Dr. Faustus, to Tamburlaine, and to the Spanish tragedy draw on plays where individuals assert themselves wonderfully but tragically against established social order. And they're all plays where our dramatic sympathies tend to be with them, not with the world against which they are pitted. It's a radical set of associations for Ford to nestle around his incestuous lovers. And interestingly, I think, by echoing well-known plays from the late Elizabethan repertoire, Ford actually familiarises the unsettling taboo at the heart of his play. He makes it seem as if we've sort of already seen it. It makes it seem, it makes it seem less immediately apparent. We may feel we have been here before. By aligning the unruly desire of Giovanni and Annabella with other kinds of unruly desire that are more immediately sympathetic, that's to say, so the desire of Romeo and Juliet, uh, to, to defy their parents, or Belle Imperia's wish to choose her own lovers, Tis Pity at once normalises its incestuous core, even as, I'm going to go on to say, it sensationalises it. So before I come back to talk a bit more about the play, let's have a brief think about the time span. I've already said that Ford's play draws on the drama of three decades previously, and it's difficult to know uh, quite what to do with that. Uh, we always feel that the drama in this period has its main life in the theatre and perhaps a kind of secondary or subsidiary life in print. It is true that all those plays that I've mentioned that Ford's using carry on having a life in print uh, and to some extent on the stage right up to the Caroline period when Ford's writing. But there is also, I think, at this point in the 1630s, a sense of a rediscovery or um, recuperation, perhaps, of Elizabethan drama. Revisiting a cultural period as vintage or retro 30 years after its first existence and then replaying it in a more ironic or perhaps camp mode might seem quite recognisable to us. Uh, it's the equivalent of cultural cycles uh, of popular entertainment in our own time. And there are two distinct ways, at least two distinct ways, to see what work this kind of nostalgic reappropriation does for a culture. So what does the, what does the act of looking back 30 years uh, and recycling some of those tropes do for Ford and do for Ford's audience in the 16, early 1630s? 
And I've got two examples which are not really to do with Renaissance drama at all, partly to suggest that it's quite a good idea to try and bring um, critical material that's not already repackaged or packaged up for Renaissance drama uh, into contact with these texts. So the first book is by a cultural anthropologist called Greg Urban, and the book's called Metaculture, How Culture Moves Through the World. And for Urban, the main thing about culture is that it is dynamic. Uh, he talks about culture's inherent dynamism, its built-in propensity for change, but also its ability to generate self-interpretations or self-understandings. You can see that that's some ways that's what metaculture might suggest. Self-interpretations or self-understandings. So Urban has got a model of how culture changes um, being a kind of one step, uh, one foot backwards, one foot forwards. For urban, for urban, metaculture is significant in part because it imparts an accelerative force to culture. It aids culture in its motion through time, to, through, through space and time. So metaculture is significant in part because it imparts an accelerative force to culture. It aids culture in its motion through space and time. The suggestion there is that by looking back metaculturally, you gain some momentum from forward momentum. It's interesting to think of uh, Tis Pity as a kind of metacultural Romeo and Juliet, which kicks that most famous play into immortality, or perhaps vice versa. So Urban's argument is that culture renews itself through, through quotation and reworking. What we get through this process then of looking back or going back to previous cultural artifacts is something which is distinctly forward-looking. In some ways, that's what Emily Bartels argues about the relationship between Romeo and Juliet and Tis Pity in her article in the Cambridge Companion to English Renaissance Tragedy. She argues, in looking at these two plays together, what the intertextual layering between Romeo and Juliet and Tis Pity helps to show is um, that the, the presumption that incest, by unleashing unthinkable <coughs> desire, disrupts domestic order, and the assumption that marriage, by containing desire, in fact, produces order, is what's under review or under sceptical review in Tis Pity. Shakespeare's plays are contrastingly conservative, she says. In them, marriage, along with the illusion that it should and could serve to regulate and legitimate desire, remains unquestioned as the cornerstone of social order. So things go belly up broadly in Romeo and Juliet, but it doesn't make you think, oh, it's terrible that people, you know, marriage is a terrible institution. It makes you think it went wrong in this case. It's a more, it's, it's a more specific or, um, uh, it's a more specific case. Uh, what happens, she argues, in Tis Pity is that once we've been through the play, we feel very uh, much more sceptical about marriage as an order, as a social order. Indeed, she says, in Romeo and Juliet, subversion happens through, rather than as in Ford, to marital structures. It's quite an interesting distinction. So that what, what she's arguing that happens to um, the idea of marriage in Ford is that it is subverted. Bartel's argument is that Ford's incestuous union makes us sceptically review the social institution of marriage itself, whereas Shakespeare's fated lovers reinforce that institution. It's a specific example, perhaps, of Urban's idea of metaculture. Culture might quote from the past to move forward ideologically as well as aesthetically. So, of course, there's an alternative view about how nostalgia and cultural retrospection work for the nostalgic societies. Another recent book, Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past by Simon Reynolds, it's a more jaundiced view. <coughs> Reynolds' take, he's talking about the 21st century, so it's interesting to think whether it's applicable to the 17th, is that we exist now in a crisis of over-documentation. It's a nice phrase, a crisis of over-documentation. We're so burdened up with the records of the past. Uh, it's so easy to recall anything. Uh, musically is what he's particularly talking about, but we could extend that more broadly culturally. We're so burdened with all those things that we can recall from the past that we live in a moment, he says, of hyperstasis. Hyperstasis. Interesting to think whether there was a hyperstasis in the 1630s. It certainly looks like one, but we need to be careful about sort of retrospective telescoping 
um, in our sort of literary historical terms, the 1630s looks like a decade waiting for uh, the Civil War. I mean, rather like the 1930s looks like a, uh, what Auden called the low, dishonest decade. That looks like it's just waiting, really, for the outbreak of war at the end. But what we certainly do get, whether there's hypostasis or not, is a turn to the works of a previous age. It's really worth looking at the publication details of the uh, 16, early 1630s, um, which you can do um, in the uh, English Shorter Title Catalogue online, the ESTC online, to look at uh, um, to look at Elizabethan plays, which an Elizabethan text more generally, which get their first publication in the 1630s. I'll just pick out, out a couple of them: Marlowe's *Jew of Malta*. Massively uh, important play and performance, for some reason, doesn't get printed until 1633, the same year that uh, uh, Tispetitius of Hall gets printed. As do a number of uh, earlier Elizabethan plays, including the revenge play, The Tragedy of Hoffman. And it's also true that literary history has tended to feel that the plays of the later 1620s and 1630s are less interesting than those of the Elizabethan and early Jacobean period. And some interesting stuff I probably don't have time to go into about uh, a critical sense. I'm not saying this is true, but it's a critical story we tell about this period, that the theatre gets more socially elite through the 1620s and 30s, and therefore somehow it loses uh, for critics some of the uh, appeal it had as a popular medium earlier in the period. <coughs> So if you were Ford writing in the late 1620s, that's to say, you might have precisely what Harold Bloom called the anxiety of influence, the sense that the great work had already happened. But maybe that sense that the great work has already happened is only really visible in retrospect. Certainly Ford's Baroque remix of late Elizabethan drama has meant that he's always a chronological outlier in the canon of early modern drama. For example, the last and latest dated play in both Arthur Kinney's influential Blackwell anthology, Renaissance Drama, and the Norton anthology of English Renaissance Drama, where it postdates the sort of previous play, the penultimate play, by about 10 or, or a dozen years. So it's really out of time in some quite interesting way. Canons of the early modern, that's to say, routinely figure Ford as a last Jacobean or even a last Elizabethan, a writer somehow always belated but perhaps we need to be more attentive to the fact that Ford is writing so much later. He isn't just a kind of leftover Jacobean. Uh, he's writing at a point when he can look back on that period with a little bit more um, metacultural, perhaps, um, uh, self-interpretation. He's not just a belated Webster, but a Caroline dra dramatist with his own <coughs> historical moment. And that historical moment includes the particular appeal of nostalgia. This is uh, what Ford gives us is Jacobean drama tropes cited, not simply reproduced. They're kind of in quotation marks, if you like, at least by chronolog chronological separation, if nothing else. You can't just pretend in the early 1630s that um, the theatre, that people's tastes, um, uh, that the kind of aesthetic standard is still what it was uh, 20 years previously. So appropriately enough, this play, Tis Pity, about sibling incest, has had its own generational position flattened out. Our processes of canon formation have made it into a kind of brother to Romeo and Juliet and Spanish tragedy, rather than in the generational structures of early modern drama, their love child. Now, one way to see this play as distinctly Caroline, that's what I suppose I've been trying to suggest, that uh, to see a play as nostalgic doesn't mean it belongs to the period about which it's nostalgic. It means that nostalgia is a, is a particular phenomenon of the period to which it belongs, the Caroline period. And one way to think about this play as distinctly Caroline is to contextualise its performance space. The 1633 title page tells us that Tis Pity was performed by the Queen's Men at the Phoenix Theatre thus locating it in a very specific space. The Phoenix was a small, exclusive indoor theatre lit by candlelight with a restricted and high-paying audience numbering perhaps around 500. It had been built in fashionable Drury Lane, so it's not a bankside playhouse. It's about um, 
something we've talked about in terms of commercialization of uh, uh, London's kind of uh, cityscape. It's about a kind of westward movement, um, the movement towards West End theatre, which of course we now uh, identify so much with London. It was built in Drury Lane by the, for the impresario Christopher Beeston, probably by the architect and mask designer Inigo Jones. <coughs> And it was on the framework of a cockfighting arena, so that air of blood sports is not far from this play and from other Phoenix ones. But there's another um, architectural intertext that I want to present, and that's the idea of the anatomy theatre. Inigo Jones would go on to design the first English anatomy theatre for the Barber Surgeons Company in London a few years after the performance of Tis Pity. So anatomy theatres were uh, demonstration spaces uh, with um, a space around for people to watch and a space in the middle, a kind of stage-like space, for an anatomy, a dissection of a cadaver, to be undertaken and to be explained uh, as it was being done. Contemporary images of anatomy theatres at Leiden and elsewhere show how closely these structures mapped onto the space of the stage in early modern England. And it may be that Ford capitalises for his educated and wealthy audiences at the Phoenix on the appeal of these new scientific investigations. So lots of the kind of people who went to the Phoenix were also the people who were well-connected with uh, people or did themselves travel. Uh, going to an anatomy demonstration was a big thing about European travel for educated people in this period. And Ford may capitalise on that kind of contemporary interest and on its associated philosophical debate about whether the body was primarily a theological or a biological entity. There was no public provision for anatomising corpses in England until 1638, um, when Jones um, built that anatomy theatre for the barber surgeons. And in part, this was because of fears that the scientific investigation of the human body threatened to be dangerously secular. <coughs> Bringing that more general discussion back to Tis Pity, it's worth remembering that, as Jonathan Sorday pointed out in his landmark book called The Body Emblazoned, first published in 1995, it was in particular the idea of anatomizing a female body that was a thrill of both uh, kind of intellectual and probably uh, a kind of, some kind of sexual thrill too. Anatomy became a kind of penetrative mastery. Sorde writes, the womb or uterus was sought after with an almost ferocious intensity in Renaissance anatomy theatres. You might want to think whether that's actually not also true of uh, uh, English stage theatres too. Books of anatomised figures, such as those by Vesalius, repeatedly pictured strangely anatomised women who looked like cross-sectioned classical goddesses, idealising and at once dissecting them for the public gaze. Now, it is pity anticipates this interest, or perhaps capitalises on this interest, <coughs> in public anatomies by using its own anatomy theatre-like design to perform its own dissection. And that's not just metaphorically, although since at least Sir Philip Sidney's defence of poetry in the 1580s, tragedy had been seen as itself a kind of probing dissection. Tragedy, writes Sidney, openeth the greatest wounds and showeth forth the ulcers that are covered with tissue. The idea that tragedy went beneath the surface in an anatomising way was actually quite commonplace. It's easy to see how tragedy's interest in corruption understands that word as both moral and spiritual and corporeal. Uh, a society be can be corrupt, but so can meet. Slicing through outer appearances to reveal what's going on inside gives a distinctly visceral twist to those arguments in the period about whether identity is located internally or externally. When Hamlet describes that within which passeth show, we have tended to interpret that as being his deepest and most secret desires. We've tended to assume that because of our own sense that the body's secrets are spiritual or psychological. 
But for the early moderns, the body's secrets were physical, were physiological. This was a period, Hamlet was writing in a period before the circulation of the blood was understood. Maybe that within was the imperfectly understood organs that mysteriously regulated Hamlet's morbid physiology. So the question about what was inside the body, how the body worked, uh, what the mechanisms of the body were, these were actually quite unknown, relatively unknown uh, phenomena, and there's an appetite for finding out more about them. But for tis pity then, so tragedy I'm saying always has a kind of anatomical impulse, but for tis pity the question of anatomization and uh, anatomical investigation is literal, not metaphorical, though it does simultaneously carry with it the curious quality of a symbol from an emblem book. Horrifically, at the end of the play, Giovanni, who is in bed with his sister, attacks her. And here, the Shakespearean intertext turns inevitably to Othello. Giovanni questions her with violently possessive jealousy and vows to kill thee in a kiss. To kill thee in a kiss. And he stabs her. At the end of the scene, the stage direction is ominous. Exit with the body. Off stage, tantalisingly out of sight, the Italian student Giovanni, home from university in Bologna, which was known as a centre for anatomy, will perform one of those forbidden investigations, a new transgression on his sister's body, the physical, scientific equivalent of that scholarly argumentation with the friar about the morality of incest which begins the play. So off stage, Giovanni is going to do an anatomy. The next scene in the play is set at a banquet to celebrate Soranzo's birthday. Early modern tragedy well understood what soap operas have exploited ever since, that a celebratory get-together is the perfect backdrop to acts of personal or social apocalypse. We've already seen this in, in this play at the marriage celebrations for Annabella and Soranzo, at which uh, Soranzo's discarded lover Hippolyta turns up bent on poisoning Soranzo. In the event, Soranzo's servant Vasquez poisons her and she dies cursing the newly married couple and prophesying ominously, mayst thou live, she says to Soranzo, to father bastards, may her womb bring forth monsters and die together in your sins, hated, scorned and unpitied. Annabella is of course at this point already pregnant with her brother's child. Annabella Silent during this unfolding horror as Hippolyta dies, says only, it is a fearful sight. And the idea of women's physical suffering as spectacle is one this play keeps returning to, and that it's connected to the anatomy that I've been talking about. Soranzo agrees, we must break up the mirth, it is too sad a feast. The next feast, though, is similarly ill-starred. Giovanni erupts into the scene of Soranzo's birthday party, which immediately follows the scene of the murder of Annabella that I've just been talking about. <coughs> the stage direction in the 1633 quarto reads, Enter Giovanni with a heart upon his dagger. Enter Giovanni with a heart upon his dagger. Giovanni turns festivity into a kind of cannibalism, revealing the meaty etymology of the word carnival. You came to feast, my lord, with dainty fare. I came to feast too, but I digged for food in a much richer mine. Unsurprisingly, he's met with incomprehension. And here I think we get something of the epistemology of the emblem book mobilised on stage. So early modern emblem book culture established an iconography of proverbial wisdom. Pages of emblem books characteristically had a symbolic illustration, a motto, and an explanatory poem. The image, that's to say, required explanation or summary, both in a pithy, sometimes a rather gnomic form, and at more discursive length. So there was a visual, uh, a longer piece of um, prose or verse explanation, and a kind of uh, quotable summary. The pierced heart was in emblem books, and still quite recognisably for us today, I think, in the iconography of Valentine's Day or uh, tattoo, uh, the tattoo parlour. Um, the printed heart, the, sorry, the pierced heart was a symbol of love's cruelty, and in Catholic iconography, a symbol of the martyrdom of St. Teresa. 
Uh, one of the things that is different about the 1630s is that Queen, Henry, uh, Queen Henrietta Maria's Catholicism means a changing cultural attitude towards Catholicism. Uh, and that, I think, um, is overlaid uh, in Ford with um, the sense of recuperating or uh, bringing forward Catholic clerics from Jacobean central casting. Ford's uh, Catholic cardinals and friars seem to be offcuts from Webster plays. So the emblem then is brought on stage, the heart um, uh, upon his dagger. Crazed with, revolution, with, 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 crazed with revelations, Giovanni offers us an explanation of this picture. Tis Annabella's heart, tis, why do ye startle? I vow tis hers, this dagger's point ploughed up her fruitful womb and left to me the fame of a most glorious executioner. Amid the questioning of the horrified onlookers, he elaborates. For nine months' space, in secret I enjoyed sweet Annabella's sheets. Nine months I lived a happy monarch of her heart and her. So he continues with more and more explanation, enraging Saranzo, shocking the father. Here I swear by all that you call sacred, by the love I bore my Annabella while she lived, these hands have from her bosom ripped this heart. The moment literalises and makes steaming flesh of platonic ideas about lovers changing hearts. A number of earlier exchanges between Giovanni and Annabella, uh, just searching in this play for the uses of the word heart, is quite revealing. Those earlier exchanges take on a queasily bodily connotation in the light of the physicalisation of an apparent metaphor. Remember Northrop Fry, who we encountered in thinking about the prodigious fertility of the plot of Middleton's Chase made in Cheapside. Fry told us something is born at the end of comedy. Here, at the end of tragedy, Annabella's unborn child and her heart are elided and kebabbed as so much bloody meat. It is the impossibility of birth that confirms the tragedy. Giovanni explains, her too fruitful womb too soon berayed the happy passage of our stolen delights and made her mother to a child unborn. The specificity of the duration of their sexual relationship, Giovanni uh, emphasises twice that it has lasted nine months, makes this murder a kind of perverse anti-birth. Something here cannot be allowed to be born at the end of tragedy. So, so far then, we've seen two elements of the emblem book tradition, the picture and the longer explanation working out in this final scene of Tis Pity. We haven't yet seen the motto. How, in the emblem book tradition, would we summarise what's being depicted and cut through this extensive account by Giovanni on the circumstances? Perhaps that's where the play's title comes in. The very last speech of this play is uttered by the cardinal, a hollowly hypocritical figure who, in the last scene, replaces the friar as the representative of religious authority. The, fly, the friar flees the play uh, earlier on, um, seeing, that, uh, it, seeing how it's going to end up, end up. This is the cardinal. These are the very last lines of the play. We shall have time to talk at large of all, but never yet incest and murder have so strangely met. Of one so young, so rich in nature's store, who could not say... Tis pity she's a whore. In 1633, in the quarter of 1633, that final phrase that gives the play its title is emphasised by being printed in italics. You see this easily if you look the play up on early English books online on Ebo. Um, in this play, and for, for most plays actually, it's much easier to search by author's name since that pencil has been standardised. It's quite hard to guess how Tis pity she's a whore would have been spelt in early modern orthography. Now, the italic typeface in the 1633 quarto may be to highlight this phrase for readers interested in commonplacing. The standard method of reading in this period was much less concerned with overall plot or overall moral message, and much more interested in extractable snippets, quotable, pithy, moral, clever sentences from reading matter, which could then be directly used in or used <coughs> as models for the reader's own writing. So keeping a commonplace book was to keep a store of wisdom, a kind of book of quotations, 
uh, to draw on uh, in her own writing and conversation. So that may be what the italic typeface signals. But it may also suggest that the phrase was already a commonplace, that the cardinal has ransacked his own commonplace book and come up with this rather random, unrelated quotation in an attempt to sum up the mayhem that we've just seen. Even by the standards of early modern tragedies, they tend to be deeply unconvinced by the claims of any of the survivors to stand up uncontaminated and review events uh, and make a hopeful prediction about the future. So even though tragedy's endings are always more about entropy and chaos than about a better tomorrow, even by those standards, the cardinal's rhyming couplets seem uh, pretty hollow. Maybe they're an index of incomprehension, maybe an index of cynicism. In the play's final divergence from the more conservative and comforting cast of its source, Romeo and Juliet, Ford offers no comfort at the end of the play. There is no reward, not even understanding, for the sacrifice of the children. Perhaps in the final lines, the cardinal, or maybe Ford, is trying to make the phrase, "'Tis pity she's a whore," stand as the motto in this emblem book final scene. But I think the play is simultaneously able to see that this is an inadequate, even unfair designation. Annabella is not on stage at this point, or at least only part of her is, and it seems willfully, even self-consciously misogynistic, to turn to her culpability in the, play, in the play's final breath. Is that phrase, "'Tis pity she's a whore," heard then when spoken on stage at the Phoenix, as a hollow or even ironic summary of the play, is this the collapse of the emblem book's moral philosophy? Or is it a comforting reflex when faced with moral transgression and disorder to turn it somehow onto women's feigned and destructive sexual appetite? If you're interested in the way in which this play constrains and condemns its women and punishes their, them bodily for their sexuality, you might enjoy Angela Carter's rewrite of the same name. Um, there are quite a lot of sort of interesting modern intertextual uh, usages of Tis Pity, which it might be good to put in a dialogue with the way Tis Pity uses the past. Um, Tom Stoppard's play, The Real Thing, for instance, has Tis Pity as the play within the play. One element of the shock of this final scene of Tis Pity must have been the guilty complicity of the audience. The play develops and exploits the intimacy afforded by the indoor theatres like the Phoenix, a combination of intense lighting effects and the pro proximity of audiences uh, to the action to create a claustrophobic atmosphere. Incest becomes almost a metaphor for, as well as a symptom of, claustrophobia. One of the features of the indoor theatres is that they reallocated ticket pricing to make the seats closest to the action the most expensive ones. In the outdoor theatre, of course, the more money you paid, the further you were away from um, both the stage and the, the kind of common uh, audience members. The, the cheapest uh, entry point uh, for the Globe or the Swan was to be uh, in the yard close to the stage. Watching spectacle and associ associatedly, I think, a kind of voyeurism become crucial to the sensory and financial economy of indoor theatres like Beeston's The Phoenix. And in the play, the threat of this kind of consuming viewing, this visual greed, this pornographic economy, is displaced onto the character of Putana. Putana is called in the list of characters Annabella's tutress, uh, the female form of tutor. But, of course, her name is Italian for whore. She, Putana, is tricked by Saranzo's servant, Vasquez, into betraying the name of Annabella's baby's father. And she is then punished, but without any explanation for why this specific punishment has been enforced. The punishment is to put out her eyes. Now, sight and desire have been explicitly related earlier in the play. Annabella sees right at the start someone in the distance and urges, see, Putana, see, what blessed shape of some celestial creature now appears. See, Putana, see. 
This lovely vision is in fact Annabella's brother, Giovanni. But it seems that Putana's acceptance of this incestuous affair stands in for the audience's acceptance. Her lenient surveillance substitutes for ours. Therefore, her punishment is both painfully appropriate and unsettlingly scapegoating. Looking on these transgressive acts is dangerous. But the stage of Tis Pity is also, as in the scene we've just looked at where Giovanni takes Annabella's body off stage to dig out her heart, is also able voyeuristically to tease us with what is happening just out of sight. At the end of Act One, Giovanni has secured Annabella's consent to their affair, persuading her that Holy Church has sanctioned their match. At the beginning of Act Two, the stage direction sees them as, as from their chamber as from their chambers, interesting what that might mean about their, um, uh, their dress or their, um, their appearance. Giovanni's opening lines make it very clear what's happened in the interim, what's happened between their exit, uh, a scene before, and this, this point. Come, Annabella, no sister now but love, a name more gracious, do not blush. Most modern productions, this play has an extensive and really interesting modern stage history, most modern productions are more explicit still in showing that part of the allure of this play has always been its forbidden eroticism. It is a pornographic play in some quite important way, I think. One review of Declan Donnellan's Cheek by Jowl production in 2012 captured the um, strange kind of uh, transgressive coupling of religion and sex in this play, describing and how an ensemble chorus encant a Latin corpus Christi prayer and lay a sheet over their humping bodies like a shroud. The 2014 Globe Theatre production in the new indoor theatre, the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, also linked carnality and a kind of kitsch Catholicism. At the start, we see the naked lovers palpably enjoying sex to the ironic accompaniment of a chanted Gloria in excelsis. At one review, the Guardian concluded... Ford's play seems at once lofty and horny. It's up to us how we watch. A 1970s X-rated Italian movie version directed by Petroni Griffi with Charlotte Rampling as Annabella realised some of the pornographic potential in the story, although one reviewer on the Internet Movie Database reports helpfully there is a fair amount of sex in the movie, but it isn't very graphic, so fans of the rough stuff are likely to be disappointed. (laughs) Although perhaps because it now reads as a sleazy, low-budget film. You can see it on YouTube, but I don't know whether I should recommend it. It taps into something that accounts of the religious or theological or philosophical or intertextual elements of his pity are embarrassed to acknowledge. So it taps into the fact this is a kind of erotic thriller, a sort of slasher porn. Gestures towards high-mindedness, debates about whether incest is a good thing or not, may simply be a fig leaf, not just for Giovanni, but for the play itself. And there are interesting ways that Griffey's film engages with its director's own homosexuality. It figures incest as a transgressive but authentic alternative to a stultifying entrapment in marriage. We might just take up really briefly another cinematic version of this play, Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. Uh, Greenaway has repeatedly discussed that this, the way this is inspired by Ford's play Uh, And one of the things it does with Ford, interestingly, I guess, is to amplify the black comedy of its Baroque or camp belatedness. Greenaway's film ends with a cannibalistic banquet like Ford's play. Um, It's a response to his pity, which is preoccupied with the death-driven decadence. The point I want to make from that brief gallop through some recent stage and film history is that two elements are in continual tension in the play and its reception. It's caught between sensationalist sexual and violent spectacle on the one hand and on a more empathic representation of transgressive sexuality as an assertion of personal freedom. Transport for London banned posters on the tube for the 2014 Sam Wanamaker production because they were too raunchy. The play in the 21st century theatre continues to capitalise, commercially as well as in other ways, on the explicitly sexual connotations of its title. That's to say, Tis Pity She's a Whore has it both ways. 
It sees the relationship from the outside as a voyeuristic spectacle and from the inside as an emotional and passionate relationship forbidden by a hostile society. Moral uncertainty, then, is its abiding tone. But what's ultimately so challenging about it is that the incest doesn't really seem to be the main point of the play. Or rather, it is not an automatic trigger for audience disgust. A dedicatory poem to the first printed edition in 1633 brings this out. To my friend the author, With admiration I beheld this whore adorned with beauty, such as might restore, if ever being as thy muse hath framed, her Giovanni in his love unblamed. The ready graces lent their willing aid, Pallas herself now played the chambermaid and helped to put her dressings on. Secure rest thou, that thy name herein shall endure to the end of age, and Annabella be gloriously fair, even in her infamy. We don't know Thomas Ellis, the author of the poem, but it's presented as having the author's sanction as part of the paratextual presentation of the play play in print. And the praise of the play here in this poem is strikingly unjudgmental. Unblamed and infamy are the only sign of censure, and these are both syntactically cancelled out, blamed, uh, not blamed, but unblamed. She is fair in her infamy. (coughs) Or does it construct Annabella as a general object of desire? Any man in the audience, in the play, would be drawn to her. But the poem suggests that the proper reception of the play requires a kind of sympathy for its protagonists, (coughs) particularly perhaps for Annabella. And that is really what Ford seems to offer. On the one hand, he has ramped up the sensationalism of his depiction of transgressive sexuality. On the other, he has deployed this relationship with a kind of dispassionate sympathy. The end of the play, I think, does not attempt to make sense of its moral vacillation nor to resolve any kind of message. I think we're left with the slightly compromised, grubby feelings of horror, bewilderment and complicity. Ford's voyeuristic take on Shakespeare draws on his sympathy for the lovers, but hollows out their relationship as an ethical focus and turns their passion to shocking, misogynistic violence. But tis pity she's a whore takes perhaps the only behaviour that the Renaissance found taboo that we continue to find difficult (coughs) and turns that moral certainty into ambiguity. It's as if, it seems as if it produces its spectacular incest as the commercial theatrical answer to an urgent but unarticulated social desire, a desire that arises from the combination of those new scientific discoveries, including anatomy, the voyeuristic economy of the indoor theatres, and the ongoing influence of those shaping texts of the Elizabethan playhouse. Next week is the last of my lectures, and I'm going to turn back to comedy, but continue the association of Shakespeare. John Fletcher's play, The Tamer Tamed, is an explicit sequel to Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. What I want to do is to develop some of the ideas about dramatic generations, theatrical supersessionism, and the anxiety of influence that I've talked about today.